0: brand new sermon series. It's called Galatians. Uh, the subtitle there is Jesus Plus Nothing. You're going to hear that a few times over the next few weeks. Uh, we're going to spend six weeks in the book of Galatians. It's got six chapters, so it kind of worked out pretty well for our summer. And um, I'm excited because every time you get into a, a, one of the, especially the, the New Testament letters, the temptation is to go, well, we're a lot like that culture. Oh, Ephesians, well, we're a lot like the Ephesians or Corinthians. This is a pretty Corinthian kind of place we're in. And I find myself wanting to go there every time we're in one of these letters, and it just occurs to me that humans are humans and have always been humans. And our brokenness has always been our brokenness, and our, our idols have always been our idols. And so in that vein, um, we want to study the book of Galatians because it was written from Paul to the Galatians, but we also want to consider um, what that might look like in our lives and in our, in our space as we exhibit right now. So I'm just going to jump right in, no, uh, no other pretext. Galatians uh, chapter one, verse one, we're gonna read the salutation and start from there. Uh, Paul, telling who wrote it, an apostle uh, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches at Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever, Amen. So that's the beginning. Paul says, dear Galatia, it's me, Paul. That's what that is. The context you need to know as we get into the next six weeks, um, this is an area in what is now southern Turkey. It's part of the Greco-Roman world, so Greco-Roman wrestling you may have heard of. This is the Greco-Roman world, it's established by the Emperor Augustus, so think of the Romans and the, the little leaves and the Olympics, and it's, it's kind of a, a Roman place, but it's a Greco-Roman place, which means there's lots of gods. There's a Zeus, and there's a Nero, and there's a this and there's a that, and there's all these different gods and idols all over the place, and part of the society that they live in, there was a expected, it was compulsory that everyone in this society, which is again, it's an empire that the Greco-Roman world has kind of uh, put their stamp on. The Romans who are in charge, everyone has to worship all of the different gods. It's just part of your day. The time hits and you need to worship all of these different gods. And it's not just one, it's not just two, it's all of them. And it's just part of life. It's like paying taxes or something. It's just something you're expected to do because the people in charge say you got to do it. Now, This is interesting, only, and the only reason I even mentioned that, because what's the point, Jews who lived in this area were exempt of this um, rule. The only people who didn't have to worship like this were Jews. Jews were strangely fervent about their one true God, about this monotheistic concept, and Jews refused to do the other, and the leaders actually kind of respected it maybe, and they found that the Jews weren't much trouble if they would let the Jews worship their one God. And so as a way to kind of keep the peace, you know, if you're in power, all you want is uh, limited uprisings. Like if people are willing to let you stay in power, you'll let them kind of do what they want as long as you keep power. And so the Jews were allowed to worship their one God, but they were the only ones. Why does this become a problem? Well, it becomes a problem because eventually there's new people converting to uh, follow Jesus along with some of the Jews there who had converted to follow Jesus. And now you have more people that are kind of finding their way into this uh, carve out. And it's only interesting, because it, it's, it's, a, it's, you know when you go to the Stroh Center for an event, it's a, it's a basketball game, it's a graduation, it's whatever. People who live here don't pay for parking. I mean, some of you have a parking pass, and that's fine. Everybody I know, I'm like, where do you park? Because I'm, you know, I'm way out in the distant. And they're like, oh, you, it's like five feet away, you park at Buffalo Wild Wings. You're like, well, that's not what that's for. And there's a big sign that says... This is not for that. Oh, yeah, but if that's closed, then you just park in the Hampton, and they don't care. And you're like, what, what? And it's just, you know all the different businesses. Panera gets real busy on game nights, doesn't it? And yet there's no one in Panera, but every parking spot's taken by people going to an event. (laughs) I agree. So, that only works if a limited number of people do it. If everyone does it, if everyone decided they were going to park in a private business instead of where you were supposed to, then the private business would start hiring somebody to say, you can't park here anymore, right? It becomes a problem. But this is sort of what's happening in Galatia, is the Jews are like, we got to carve out. Look, we got a good deal here. Nobody knows about this parking spot. We're here. No one needs to know. Let's keep it. And what happens is, as these Christians begin to follow Jesus, these non-Jewish Christians They apply for the same carve-out. They say, we also follow the monotheistic God of the Jews and his son, Jesus Christ. So we shouldn't have to do that either. And this becomes a problem on, on two fronts. One, it's a threat to the ruling party because the ruling party says anybody who decides they want to follow this Jesus just gets to opt out of civic duty. That's not okay. But the Jews are also pretty upset about it. The existing Jews are figuring out that this is going to ruin their special deal. Because if enough people try to get the special deal, then the government's going to crack down, and then we're all going to have to worship all these other gods, and it's going to be a problem. So, Paul finds the followers of Jesus in disarray. Remember, they're mostly Jewish, and as others are believing and joining, these early believers are losing the gospel along the way. The existing kind of Jewish center of the faith, as the Gentile believers are coming in, they're trying to impose new rules and new Standards and they're raising the bar to try to keep people out, in a sense. Things like circumcision for adult converts. So we pick up in uh, Galatians 1, verse 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting, Paul says, the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion or trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven, Should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul makes really clear, a different gospel is no gospel. You, you, you want to change, you want to tweak, you want to make the good news something different. That's not the good news anymore. That's a whole different thing. Call it what you want, but it doesn't make it so. And this matters today, right? We live in a world where people update their theology to match a culture, to stay in step, to stay relevant. We, uh, well, I don't know, maybe this minus that, or maybe a little bit over here, and maybe if I can just tweak it a little bit, then I can still follow Jesus, and I can be acceptable to my neighbor, my friend, my relative, my coworker, my whomever. And Paul says, are we trying to please people... Are we trying to serve Christ? And this is a huge challenge for us because it feels, it feels difficult at times. It feels hard at times to draw a line in the sand on what the Bible says, knowing it's going to wound somebody or offend somebody or maybe break relationship with somebody. But Paul's really clear about it. The Bible says, if you are trying to please people, you're not really a servant of Christ. And so you have to make the choice every single day, who am I waking up to serve? Am I here to serve Christ or am I here to serve people, to please people? And if, if it's people, then that's not the gospel. And people continue to update, well, as long as you have a good heart or as long as you're loving or as long as you're accepting or as long as you're, and Paul would say, as long as you're nothing, it's not the gospel. Jesus brought the good news. He laid out vast teaching. It's about Not only belief, but behavior and morality to what true life in the kingdom looks like. Jesus laid it all out. If it's different than what Jesus laid out, then it's not it. Consider vacation. Remember when vacation meant you didn't work? Yeah. Someone came in my office this week having just gotten back from vacation. I said, How are you doing? They go, I'm exhausted. Exhausted from vacation. Used to be when you uh, vacated, you vacated, you vacated your desk, you vacated your job, you vacated your station, you vacated your life. Now, thanks to the glory of your mobile phone, you don't have to leave any of that behind. And so, let's say you're replying to an email. Now, let's say next week, you're replying to an email on the beach. Is one vacation, is one work? You're still at work is my uh, contention. I would like to argue that if you're replying to your email while you're at the beach or on a mountain or whatever on your anniversary dinner, you're still working. You'd never left work. Work just came with you. You're, um, to use modern parlance, you're now working remotely, which sounds real sweet, except it's a scourge. Um, <laughs> let's just do, I got a formula. I'm gonna put the formula up over here. This is, this is your new uh, vacation formula. Some of you are going on beach vacations this week. I've heard the stories. The office plus work emails, that's not vacation. Home plus work emails, clearly also not vacation. We start to get a little weird, you go, but what about beach plus work emails? Beach plus pina colada plus work emails? Beach plus, like how far do I have to go before I can still reply to an email and it's not work? And you're like, nah, as long as there's a work email, that's still not vacation. The only thing that is vacation amongst these options is beach plus nothing. Vacation equals beach plus nothing. Otherwise, we're changing the purity of the thing to something else, aren't we? Adding a beach to work doesn't make it vacation. Grading papers or writing a report or answering a work call on the mountain is not a vacation. Adding something just slight to the gospel its not the gospel. So what's the kingdom formula then? If that's the vacation formula, what's the kingdom formula look like? And we're all guilty of taking our little stab at it. Jesus plus works or Jesus plus rituals or Jesus plus rules or Jesus plus I'm adding in a couple different side beliefs that have come of age since Jesus. Uh, Okay. And the end of the thing is the kingdom equals Jesus plus nothing. And anything else that someone is selling you is not the gospel. How does this apply to our spiritual lives then? If this is true, then how does this apply to our daily life? What is it uh, that we can see in our own lives that looks like the church at Galatia. I would say there's two ruts on the road that we travel. This is nothing new. This is nothing I created. There's, there's legalism, the high rule following, high ritual, high religion. And then there's licentiousness, license. I have a license to do something, and I do a lot of it, which is the, like, I claim Jesus, but I still kind of live however I want and just deal with it. I mean, there's grace, right? So one says, like, well, let's say it this way. Um licentiousness abuses grace, meaning I know I have grace, so I use it. I gossip, and I'm drunk, and I'm yelling at my neighbor, and I'm prideful with my kids, and I'm, okay, well, that's cool, but that's not what grace is for. On the other end of the spectrum, it's like, I don't even think grace could really apply to me because I got to work harder for it. Legalism refuses grace. He goes, that seems like a little wishy-washy to me. I'm going to work harder and follow more rules, and I'm going to do it earlier just so my neighbor knows that I'm a little bit more righteous than they are, and, and that's how that's going to work. I posted it on the Instagram that I did my Bible study at 3 a.m. Okay, Cool. And the other, the licentious person, is just getting in from the night at 3 a.m. And they're looking at it, and they feel a little guilty, but they're like, but grace, you know? And it's, it's either one is this rut. And Jesus is like, it's kind of the middle way. Neither of those is the rut you want to be in. Sometimes you're, um, how you grew up or maybe your, your family of origin, your context, determines which rut you're more likely to fall into. And maybe that's where we want to land eventually is, is which one is more likely your rut, If you're going to land in one or the other, which one is it? I grew up Catholic, and so it was a high ritual, high religion, high rule-following sort of thing. It's works, 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 works. We have good Catholic brothers and sisters out there. I was uh, not one of them. But as a result of living kind of under the scourge of rules, when grace entered my life, one, I couldn't quite believe it was real, but then, two, abused it to no end. And i lived in the cycle of... Friday, Saturday night, uh, grace abuse, followed by Sunday guilt, which was a good Catholic thing, and then I'd go the whole week white-knuckling, trying to be good enough, until I fell off the wagon again, and I'd do it again. And so my life was sort of this mix of I'd spend a couple days in one rut and then five days in the other rut, but I never could find that center line. Everybody has their, their place, and everybody gets their, their own way. But the, the problem is, especially for the licentious among us, we take freedom too far. John 8, 36, if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Jesus is the true high priest. Jesus jumped through the hoops. Jesus did all the work, so you don't have to worry about your works anymore. But when we over-index into that sort of freedom, that's a beautiful freedom. Over-indexing it, that creates trouble. When we go from, um, from like, I'm suffocating under rules or I'm suffocating in the world, or I'm suffocating in sin to there are no rules and Jesus covers it all. That's one, beautiful truth, but two, a real invitation to abuse it. Romans 6, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? No. By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him and through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. It sounds familiar to you. It's what we say when we baptize people, buried with him in baptism and raised to walk a brand new life. We're new creatures. And so the sins that required the grace in the first place, I want to leave those behind as opposed to bringing them forward now that they're covered. That sounds like insurance fraud if you ask me. I got insurance now though, so I can beat this thing up all day, wrecking your car on purpose. Like that's not how that works. What is uh, licentiousness? What does that rut actually look like? That looks like when you stop calling sin, sin. Sin. I'm going to let that one sit for a minute because it's hard. It's hard because it's subtle. It goes from, I think I'm doing pretty well, just a little bit here. Nobody has to know. I'm not going to tell anybody. When you find yourself justifying sin, I only do it because. I only think it because. I only have that conversation because. Becoming tolerant of the sin of others. Not intolerant in the sense that, um, that you need to be yelling at everybody on the street. But if we're honest about ourselves, we project a lot of our own stuff on other people. And there are times when I see someone else, uh, a diagnostic for me is when I see someone else in sin and I'm willing to overlook it, it usually means that I have something like that in my life that I'd like to overlook. And that's a, that's a subtle one, but it's there if you see it. We get stuck though. We get stuck in, in sin. We get stuck in habitual sin. We get stuck in these little bits and pieces that we can, we can kind of slink off to bed knowing it was a, maybe, it, maybe not quite right. Maybe didn't honor Jesus. Maybe that wasn't my best. We can kind of slink off to bed, sleep it off, wake up the next day and go, yeah, I think I'm all right. It's deceptive. It's deceptive. The enemy wins ground in our life very rarely with big cannonballs flying through our window. He wins an inch at a time. And we, an inch, and we give 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 an inch, and pretty soon we can't see where we started. At some point, we don't even consider it. We don't confess it. We don't even think about it. It becomes part of our life rhythm. And occasionally we may even say, Well, thank God for grace. You know, thank God for grace. Licentiousness isn't primarily about the sin. So let's not get this wrong because that jerks us into the other rut and all of a sudden we're legalists now and you can't do anything ever. Licentiousness isn't about the sin. All sin and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are working out our, our sanctification. We're leaving behind the uh, heart of flesh, that heart that desires the wrong things. We're taking on more and more of the heart of Christ as we go. Licentiousness is about harboring darkness, willingly harboring darkness. Instead of fighting darkness with light, when we find ourselves in the rut of of grace abuse, we're harboring darkness and allowing it to live with us. We allow it space in our hearts. Okay, 1 Peter 5.8, we use this the last six weeks. I'm going to use it again. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Okay. When we are uh, allowing licentiousness, grace abuse, when this is our posture in life, we're inviting the lion into the house and saying, I think it'll probably be fine, though. It'll just stay in the kitchen. And this is what it's like when we allow sin to enter into our world and we don't call it out, we don't root it out, we don't fight it off. We're allowing darkness to live in our home, in our hearts. We're allowing darkness in and then expecting that it doesn't want to expand its reach. And so we're surprised when it becomes something awful. We're surprised when we end up in divorce court. We're surprised when we end up you know, with uh, criminal charges. We're surprised when it becomes embezzlement. It wasn't embezzlement. It was just a penny here and there. It wasn't an affair. It was just a look across the table. We're surprised. It's an inch at a time, but when we allow that to live in us, it will take territory. Harboring darkness is inviting the lion in and hoping it won't devour you. That's what it exists to do. Bold strategy, right? See if it pays off. Paul says to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, For you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Not in the light, you are light. You who became light used to be in darkness. To allow the darkness back in is to, it's to deny your very identity. So, live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. So, what do I do with my life if that's the rut I find myself in? That's what you do. And find a friend and confess it. Hey, I've been into this. I've been doing this. I've been saying this. I've been thinking this. I've been, this, is, this is kind of, it's a dark part of my life. And maybe you didn't even notice or maybe you knew about it but you weren't going to say anything but I need you to hold me to it because I don't want to live with the darkness in the house anymore. Okay? We can do that. That's licentiousness. That's how we cure it. That's how we get out of it. Bring it into the light. What about legalism? Legalism on the other end of the spectrum Rules define our righteousness. If I clean myself up, if I can follow the rules, then you can too. This is like um, Jesus plus rules. This would be that formula. This is what's happening in Galatia. This is what Paul is di- directly addressing. I call it pulling up the ladder. I use this phrase. It works in a staff scenario. It works in a Christian scenario. It's called pulling up the ladder. If we are Christians, I mean, if we are sinners awash at sea, in a sea of sin. And the rescue comes in the form of Jesus on the boat. And Jesus comes and he reaches out his hand and he lowers the ladder. If you've ever been in in a lake, in an ocean, and, and you have to get back into a boat, it's impossible, right? But then someone lowers the ladder and you're like, oh, this is how you do this. And you climb back up the ladder, you flop into the boat, you're exhausted from trying to tread water, and you're in. Legalism is our way of pulling the ladder up behind us. Because all of us at some point were awash in sin. All of us at some point needed the hand of Jesus to reach down and help us into the boat. The problem is, so many of us, we get into the boat and then we don't like that it's so inclusive. And so we start creating rules or we find a community that'll create some rules for us. And if I can just jump through these hoops, then I'm really saved. That's not the gospel. Jesus says, Receive my gift of rescue. What do I have to do? What do I have to do, though, to be rescued, Jesus? To paraphrase the Gospels and collapse it all down. What do I need to do to be rescued? He doesn't say, well, if you get these right, and you can memorize these things, and you can maybe change these behaviors while you're there treading water, if you can just work that out, maybe get out of debt, I don't know, some things in your life, then you can come in. Jesus goes, come in the boat, and then I'll tell you when you get here. Follow me, and then we'll talk about what life looks like once you follow me. The commitment is follow. Too often when we get into the boat, we start adding rules for the next group. Do you believe in the minutia of theology like I do? The non essentials. Were you baptized in the way I prefer? You got sprinkled? You got dunked? One of those doesn't count. Do you vote like me? No, no, not like me like me, but like exactly like me. What do you think about that referendum in nineteen ninety six? How did you vote? In some uh, some church cultures, this is an example of how legalism infects the church. I think it's supposed to be funny, but we'll find out. In some church cultures, drinking is okay. Like, drinking is fine. You want to have a drink? Have a drink. But you cannot play instruments on Sunday morning. There are these church cultures. Anybody ever been to a church where there's no instruments on Sunday morning? People have been to this church. Nothing wrong with that. That's a preference. Some people want to do. In other church cultures, I mentioned one, my wife's church culture last week, you can play instruments, but you cannot drink or dance. So there's lots of instruments, but if that foot gets tapped in too far, stop that, stop that, <laughs> Jesus is watching. Um, still other churches, people play instruments and dance so much you think they were drinking at church, that's the… <laughs> not that great. Um But all are different, right? They're all different lanes of what's allowed and what's not allowed. Can you drink? I don't know. Can you dance? I don't know. Do we play instruments? Uh I mean, they're all these non-essential things that aren't really the gospel things, but they become the thing. And then if somebody shows up to your church and they have an issue with one of these non-essential things, all of a sudden that ladder starts getting pulled up and you're like, well, you think the wrong thing. You think the wrong thing about all these things that we think about. Legalism is not about specific rules. Just the way that licentiousness is not about the sin itself. It's about allowing darkness to harbor a space in our heart. Licent- uh, legalism is not about specific rules. It's about allowing non-essential things to be elevated where they don't belong. Legalism is just elevating non-essential things, rules, rituals, whatever, into a place that's rightly and only occupied by Jesus. Legalism is allowing other things to take Jesus' place at the center of the salvation story. So if your salvation story... I know. That's a lot to take in at once. That was a legalistic baby, but it is better now. I'm just kidding. We're a family church. We're we're good with babies. We're good with children. Um, When you allow things other than Jesus... To take his place at the center of the salvation story, that's when you find yourself awash in legalism. When you're talking to a fellow believer and you really can't wait to get to this one question you have about eschatology, and you're like, but what, what do you really believe? Are you amillennial or premillennial? And they're like, I don't even, what? And you go, oh gosh, not, no, this person doesn't even know Jesus. When Jesus is central, that Begins to shape us because what this reveals is on either side we're trusting something other than the actual person of Christ. When Jesus becomes central in that central path away from each rut, it shapes us, it loosens up legalistic people towards grace. It shapes the sinner into a saint. You start finding that that good sinner with Christ. It grows us up. When we find Jesus is the center of our life, it begins to grow us up. So so the sinner who's trying to work their way towards sainthood, or, or the rule follower who's trying to prove that they earned their salvation all along. Either way, when we're with Christ, we're becoming sanctified and being made more like Him and formed more into His image. We grow in Jesus. He reforms us. He renews us. And it's beautiful. We actually, start, the Bible says, we'll grow out of our childish sins. Now, what it doesn't quite say, but I think I would like to infer, is that we grow into more adult sins, that are often a little quieter, a little more subtle, but we grow into new sins. We're always growing. And then we're always having to look at our lives and ask if this is what we were created for. Is this really the best for me? Is this my flourishing? But it's a journey. There's common pitfalls for all of us. So no matter where you are on the journey of faith, you have some of these ruts in your life. You have some of these uh, these potholes on the journey where you're at risk. But as we leave childish faith, we begin to make an impact. We start making a difference. We may lead a ministry, We become these kingdom bringers, which is then, if we had an enemy, the perfect time to induce us into something else. Once we start becoming impactful for the gospel, then the enemy wants to um, convince us of our own goodness again. See, you're good. You can do this. You're impressive. I wish others were as impressive as you. And all of a sudden, legalism starts to take root again. To paraphrase uh, Tim Keller, We need to learn to repent of our good deeds, which brings us back to our original kind of formula. We have to repent of our bad deeds. Like, we get that. My sin, I gotta repent. But we actually have to start repenting of our good deeds as if they were the thing that earned us salvation. Like, we can't start believing our own hype. It's Jesus plus nothing. So licentiousness focuses on what I can still get away with. It's seeking self with Jesus as my life insurance. It's a life of tolerance and license, and it denies Jesus atoning death and his transformative power in my life. If I am in that rut, that's what's happening. Legalism focuses on what I can accomplish. Legalism is trusting self above all. Legalism is showing up at the gates of heaven with straight A's on your life report card and saying, Jesus, would you mind signing this so I can get in now? And he's real clear about it. Yeah, I never knew you. Legalism is a life of intolerance and legalism it denies Jesus' atoning death the same way as the licentious do, except they deny it and deny his grace and mercy are required. So I don't know what path you're on. I don't know which rut is more likely for you. My hope is that you're somewhere in the middle and yet you can identify. On my worst days, I know which, which direction I'm falling off. The path out of either is Jesus plus nothing. That's the path out of Either the path out of either is bringing light into your life. If you walked out of here today, you go, you know, I am a little bit more legalistic than I maybe thought. Tell somebody. Say, hey, when you hear this from me, because I know we talk a lot. When you hear this from me, will you just go, hey, there's that thing you told me to tell you about? Oh, okay. That's not hard. Tell somebody. Finish with this. Church people... I would say for church people, and most of you would qualify as church people. You're in church, so. For most of us, the risk here is that our good behavior becomes a sneaky obstacle in our faith life. Like, good behavior is a larger obstacle to most people who follow Jesus than misbehavior. Misbehavior will get you, for sure. But good behavior is the much more subtle path. And so as a result, um, I wanted to close with a quote from the book The Prodigal God by Tim Keller. And I actually wanted to put the the cover of it here. If you haven't read this and if you hear nothing else today, but you go, I think I'm going to go get that book, though, that would be the best result of this sermon that could ever happen. Understanding the heart of the Father, understanding our role as His children, the different ways that we uh, appropriate and misappropriate His love, So this quote here is how we're going to finish. What must we do then to be saved? To find God, we must repent of the things we have done wrong. But if that's all you do, you remain just an elder brother. To truly become Christians, we must also repent of the reasons we ever did anything right. I'm going to say that one again, because that one will blow your hair back if you let it sink in. To truly become a Christian, you have to repent of the reason you ever did anything right. If your motivation is self-sustaining, if your motivation is self-justifying, if your motivation is self-salvation, that's not it. It's Jesus plus nothing. Pharisees only repent of their sins, but Christians repent for the very root of their righteousness as well. We must learn how to repent of the sin under all our other sins and under all our unrighteousness, which is the sin of seeking to be our own Savior and Lord. So either rut is the same root sin. Either rut is just taking Jesus out of the equation and placing ourselves a sinner. We must admit that we put our ultimate hope and trust in things other than God that in both our wrongdoing and our doing, licentiousness and our legalism, We've been seeking to get around God or get control of God in order to get hold of those things. It's only when you see the desire to be your own Savior and Lord, lying beneath both your sins and your moral goodness, that you're on the verge of understanding the gospel and becoming a Christian indeed. When you realize that the antidote to being bad is not just being good, then you're on the brink. He doesn't even close the loop. When you understand that the antidote to being bad is not jumping in the other rut and being really good now, you're almost there. At the end of the day, the formula is always going to be the same, that life in the kingdom, that life with Jesus, that salvation for eternity is always going to be Jesus plus nothing. And the more we can get rid of all the things we put in that place of nothing, the closer we get to his heart. Let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, your word is is rich and it is convicting. Lord, I pray that you would convict us. That uh, we would find ourselves uh, exposed by your word, exposed by your heart. Not that we would feel shame or guilt, but Lord, that we might find ourselves closer to you and seeking you with everything we have. Lord, for those uh, in the room that would find themselves awash in uh, sin and licentiousness that would be the grace abusers, Father, my prayer for them right now is that they would open their hands and release the shame that comes with it, release the guilt that comes with it, that they might find themselves lost in you. Lord, bring light to the darkness. Bring hope to these situations. Release us from the bonds we find ourselves in. Father, free us up that we might know true life is in you. Lord, for those that are in a a battle with legalism, that are always trying to one-up and and self-righteous their way to a new level, Father, I pray that you would break down the structures that allow for it. Lord, that you would expose in our hearts that um, we're all equal at your feet, that your grace covers us equally and your grace is the only thing that covers us. Father, show us that our good works are filthy rags. Show us that our our best intentions its child's drawings for the Father. Misshapen, outside the lines, and it was never about them to begin with. Lord, we repent of our uh, misdeeds. We repent of the reasons behind all of our good deeds. Father, we want you and nothing less. We want you and nothing else. So God, as we bring you uh, our lives, as we bring you our conviction, as we bring you our hearts, pray that you would continue to shape us, expose us, bring us light that we might know you better. In Jesus' name, amen.